0: Expectations kill relationships. So says Ann Voskamp in her book, One Thousand Gifts. I know this to be true from my own experience and observations in life. Relationships can be crushed under the weight of expectations. Even, maybe even especially, when those expectations aren't actually voiced. A husband expects his wife to have a home-cooked meal on the table when he arrives home. Instead, he arrives to a frazzled wife, desperately chasing an unruly child around the house. And then she says to him, get back in the car, we're going to McDonald's for dinner. The husband either silently complies, or he grumbles all the way to McDonald's. This is not entirely autobiographical, by the way. (laughs) Parents expect their children to go to bed when it's time for bed. And they often believe that their children actually do go to bed when they're told to go to bed, when in actuality they're up in their room playing video games or watching horror movies on the television into the early hours of the morning. This is completely autobiographical. (laughs) I was the child in that particular story. Think about the nature of expectations for just a moment. Where do they come from? They're quite a mixed bag. Expectations are a blend of our desires, our understanding of who the other person we're relating to is, and our acceptance of what the other person has said that they will do. A husband may desire that his wife have dinner ready when he gets home, and he might not even tell her that. That desire shapes his expectation. Now, added to that desire may be that he knows... His wife loves him and delights to feed him, or she might have told him earlier in the day that she would have dinner ready when he got home. Likewise, parents desire that their children get a good night's rest, and usually parents will communicate that in one way or another, but added to that desire is often that the parents believe that their children want to obey them even if they know that their children really don't care that much about getting a good night's rest. And then, of course, children will usually say good night and curl up in bed with the lights off. Thus, parents expect their children to go to bed and stay in bed. When a parent discovers that their child has been out of bed playing video games, the parents are understandably disappointed. Their relationship with their child has been negatively affected. And for the husband who had to eat McDonald's for dinner, he too is disappointed until he remembers that he occasionally enjoys a Big Mac. But that moment, or hour, of disappointment often creeps into the depths of the marriage relationship and turns the husband sour toward his wife. And Voskamp said, expectations kill relationships. But she was actually applying those three words to our relationship with God. Now, I think Ms. Voskamp was engaging in a little rhetorical overstatement. According to Scripture, for those who have a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ, nothing can kill our relationship with God. Nothing can put an end to our relationship with God. However, it is true that expectations can ruin our enjoyment of our relationship with God or... If we don't have a genuine relationship with God, or if we've deceived ourselves into wrongly believing that we know Jesus, our expectations of God may expose our unbelief. Think again about the mixed bag that produces our expectations. We want God to do specific things. We have a certain understanding of God's character. And we believe God's promises. Where do these three elements come from? Well, they should come from the Bible. God has told us who He is and recorded His promises to us in this grand book. However, our desires are often separated from our Bible reading. We want God to do particular things that He hasn't said anything about in the Scriptures. Or, even as we read the Bible, we can misunderstand what He said. We can elevate one passage of Scripture over others, or we can fail to see the balance between different passages. For example, we could read 1 John 4, 8, where God says, God is love, and come to believe that God doesn't actually punish the wicked. That conclusion can affect your expectations of how God will act, particularly in response to people's sin. Or we can take a promise in scripture out of context, either a promise directed to a specific individual or nation, or a promise that is conditional on certain other behavior and apply it unconditionally to ourselves. One of the saddest examples of this I've seen is how some women have claimed the promise of Exodus twenty-three twenty-six: none shall miscarry or be barren in your land and thus expected that God would not allow them to experience a miscarriage. The depth of disappointment with God expressed by these women when they either failed to get pregnant or did experience a miscarriage is difficult to measure or express. So there is great danger in unbiblical expectations Even our desires should and can be so shaped by Scripture that our desires can be biblical. The goal is to carefully consider the whole counsel of God, all that Scripture has to say about who God is and what God has said He will do, what He's promised, and then to carefully apply the Scriptures to our circumstances. We can have our desires shaped by Scripture. We can have our understanding of God's character trained and clarified by Scripture. And we can receive the promises of God in Scripture in a balanced and appropriate way. In our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 11, we find John the Baptist struggling with this very issue. He has expectations that are actually shaped by Scripture but he seems to have misunderstood some things. And he sits, disappointed with God, in a prison cell. Jesus clarifies his misunderstanding and even explains why it makes sense that John could have his expectations so skewed. As Jesus clarifies who he himself is to John, he also reveals more clearly who John is. And isn't that what we should expect? As we get to know Jesus better, we'll actually find that He shows us who we really are more clearly. So would you follow along in your Bible as I read Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. Matthew 11, 1 to 19. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples... He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. a man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation We begin with John's disappointment with Jesus. Verse 1 really concludes the previous chapter. Jesus had been teaching the disciples about what they should expect when they go out on mission. They should expect some measure of success, but a lot of opposition. They should expect their Heavenly Father to provide all they need as they go. And they should expect the Spirit of God to provide words for them when they're put to the test. And finally, they should expect that those they serve will benefit from their ministry. There will be rewards for those who receive the disciples' message. In those final verses of chapter 10, Jesus specifically spoke of a prophet's reward for the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet. As we enter chapter 11, John the Baptist becomes the topic of discussion. Will John continue to receive Jesus even though Jesus is not matching his expectations. Furthermore, will the crowds continue to receive the prophet John and thus enjoy the prophet's reward, even though he now languishes in prison? After sending out his disciples, Jesus travels on to teach and preach in other places, and the disciples of John the Baptist catch up with him. We learn back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, that John had been arrested... And in Matthew chapter 14, we'll get to hear the story about how that happened in a kind of flashback. But in the meantime, John has been rotting away in one of Herod's dungeons, perhaps as long as a year up to this point. While there, he hears about Jesus' ministry, his teaching, his preaching, and also surely his miracles. Notice there in verse 2. That Matthew says that John had heard about the deeds of the Christ, the deeds of the Messiah. So even though John is here questioning Jesus' identity, Matthew, writing years later, wants his readers to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. But John sends his disciples to Jesus to question him quite pointedly, Are you the coming one, or shall we look for yet another messianic figure? Now let's pause for a moment and consider John's dilemma. Why is he doubting? Flip back to Matthew chapter 3 for just a moment. I want you to recall John's preaching. John knew that he was paving the way for the Messiah. He summoned the Jewish people to repentance and announced that the kingdom of heaven was arriving. In John's gospel, John the Apostle, John's gospel, we see him, John the Baptist, identified Jesus specifically as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. At Jesus' baptism, He witnessed the Spirit descending on Jesus, identifying Him as the Anointed One, the Messiah. He announced that Jesus was coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. But do you remember what He said to some Pharisees and Sadducees who came to scope out His baptism? Look there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Then look at verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He announced and expected imminent judgment to come. But now, just a short time later, he sits, languishing in a prison cell, imprisoned by a wicked ruler named Herod. Jesus is out teaching and preaching and healing, showing mercy to people, to sinners even. Where is the axe that John had spoken of, and when is Jesus going to start swinging it? Where is the fire and brimstone he expected? We'll see more reasons for his disappointment and confusion in just a bit. But perhaps you can begin to understand how this fiery prophet would have sunk so low. Back to Matthew chapter 11. Let's take a look at how Jesus responds to John's question in verses 4 to 6. Jesus gives John's disciples a summary of what he's been up to, and they may have even stuck around long enough to witness him doing some of these things. Jesus says they should tell John what they are hearing and seeing, which probably implies that they heard some of Jesus' teaching and saw some of his miracles. These are the deeds of the Messiah. Now, if you look at the slide on the screen, I've listed what Jesus says here in bullet form. But I've also included Old Testament references, which you'll have to go home and read for yourself. You can see from a quick glance that most of these come from the book of Isaiah. And three or four of them come from Isaiah 35 specifically. Now, what's interesting about all of these is that except for Isaiah 61, these are not explicitly connected to the coming of the Messiah. Instead, they are all things that God's people would experience when God brings restoration and renewal to His people. When God comes to save His people, the blind will see, the lame will walk, and the deaf will hear. That was all from Isaiah 35. That lepers will be cleansed is nowhere specifically mentioned in Old Testament prophecies. However, I've included two verses that speak of cleansing connected to God's promised restoration. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-nine, a promise connected to the new covenant says, And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Well, I assume that leprosy is one of the uncleannesses that God promises to remedy. And I include Isaiah 35, 8, only because it is connected to all these others in Isaiah 35. And Jesus may have been thinking in terms of Isaiah 35 when he said this. Isaiah 35, verse 8 says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. So the holiness highway that God will establish when he brings salvation to his people will not have unclean people which I assume would include lepers walking on it. At any rate, the resurrection prophecy in Isaiah 26, 19 is probably looking ahead to the final resurrection of all dead people, but Jesus restoring life to people during his ministry seems to count as a kind of foreshadowing of that great final permanent resurrection at the end of history. Notice that Jesus lists... The poor, hearing good news, hearing the gospel, last. Which is probably his way of emphasizing this as the most important, climactic deed of the Messiah. Isaiah 61 is the only passage here that is explicitly messianic. Jesus had quoted Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 in one of his first synagogue sermons, recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. And of course he applied it to himself. He is the one anointed by the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor. So Jesus gives John's disciples a mini-catalog of activities that John should understand biblically from the Old Testament as evidence that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But I don't think this list contains anything John didn't already know. John had already heard about Jesus doing all these miracles and preaching the gospel And surely John knew his Bible well enough to know that these things should be expected of the coming Messiah. So I ask again, why is John confused and disappointed? It's actually because John knows his Bible really well. What's interesting about Isaiah 35 is that in the verse right before those verses that speak of the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, and the deaf hearing, we read these words in Isaiah 35, 4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Likewise, in Isaiah 61, where we read about the Messiah being anointed by the Spirit to preach good news to the poor, in the very next verse, we read, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, God always brings His salvation through judgment. So John is right to expect judgment. And to add personal insult to injury, we also read in Isaiah 61 verse 1, Two poetic lines after we read, to bring good news to the poor, these words, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. It seems that John might have taken this verse quite literally. While the one he believes is the Messiah is out there preaching good news to the poor and healing and raising the dead, John is languishing in a prison cell. He has biblical expectations that the Messiah will be God's agent of judgment against the wicked, wicked people like Herod, and that the Messiah will rescue God's people from prison cells. So how is Jesus' answer supposed to help Jahan? Famously, when Jesus applied Isaiah 61 to himself in that synagogue in Luke 4, he stopped short of quoting the line about the day of vengeance of our God. Likewise here, Jesus simply describes his deeds in biblical language to affirm for John, Yes, I am the Messiah. You have believed correctly. However, judgment must be delayed. John should see these positive things Jesus is doing unrelated to judgment as sufficient evidence that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. However, John must trust that Jesus, the Messiah, knows best how the fulfillment of these prophecies must unfold. John was right to warn the people of impending judgment. In fact, after Jesus clarifies to the crowds John's identity from the Scriptures, we'll look next week at how Jesus himself pronounces a bit of judgment against these unbelieving people. Nevertheless, the execution of final judgment must wait. Jesus must die in the place of sinners, must be judged himself before he can execute final judgment ...against those who remain in their rebellion. John has unbiblical expectations. Even though he has Bible verses that shape his expectations. Because he can't see the whole picture. He, just like us, must trust God's timing and shaping of these prophesied events even if they look different than we imagined based just on reading the prophecies. Jesus provides another beatitude to encourage that trust. Look again at verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's basically saying, John, in prison, you're in a good spot. Even though you're in prison... You've got to trust me. You're in a good position. You're in a good spot. You're right to believe that I'm the Messiah, but don't turn away. Don't get distracted. Don't succumb to disappointment because my ministry is not looking like you expected. Trust me. We need to hear this beatitude as well. Jesus isn't always going to fit our preconceived notions. The more we get to know Jesus, the more we'll see that he doesn't fit our human logic. And if we broaden this to our everyday living in this world as followers of Jesus, we're going to find that God doesn't work in our circumstances in ways that we expect. In fact, He is a God of surprises. He often surprises us in the ways He cares for us. Sometimes, however, He allows us to suffer for His good purposes that we cannot see. In these moments, we must not stumble over what God is doing. We must trust Him. And we must bend our expectations of Him so that we don't experience the all-too-common disappointment with God. We need to remember that as God's children, we are always in a good place, cared for by a good God. I know that's a hard pill to swallow when you're in the middle of painful circumstances. I don't know how John received Jesus' words here. I don't know whether he felt encouraged. We won't hear from John himself again. We'll watch helplessly as he's beheaded. And we might be tempted to believe that that was the most meaningless death we've ever heard of. One of God's prophets, beheaded at the whim of a dancing girl, manipulated by her wicked mother. But I leave that for Matthew 14. Here, in verses 7 to 15, Jesus turns to address the crowds to talk about the true identity of John. I suppose some who heard the conversation between Jesus and John's disciples could have thought that John's faith in Jesus is wavering. And that maybe all that John said about Jesus was actually wrong. So Jesus clears that up here. He asks them what they went all the way out into the wilderness to go see. Going to the wilderness was a treacherous journey. And yet multitudes went out to see and listen to John. What did they think he was? A reed shaken by the wind? Surely not. No one would make the trek to see a person swayed by opinions, a spineless person who had no conviction. That was not John. John was bold in his preaching, confident in his convictions, so much so that he challenged the rich and powerful King Herod to his face about his immorality and ended up in prison because of it. What about a man dressed in soft clothing, No, you don't go out to the wilderness to find a rich man dressed in a fancy robe. John was dressed in camel hair and a leather belt, very much like Elijah in the Old Testament. No, we find repeated testimony in the Gospels that the people generally believed John was a genuine prophet, sent from God, the first in over 300 years. So naturally... They were all quite excited, hoping to hear the word of the Lord. But Jesus says that John was actually more than a prophet. What does he mean? Well, for starters, John was a prophet who fulfilled prophecy. Jesus makes this explicit in verse 10. He quotes Old Testament scripture to identify John as being foretold, prophesied about. Look at verse 10 again. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying about John, we really need to pay attention to the details of this quotation. I want to unpack this because this is the heart of what Jesus says about John. Much of this is debated. Two questions are key, and we're going to take them in a way that might seem backwards. First, whose way is John preparing? And then we'll address the question, who is Jesus saying John is? So to understand whose way John is preparing, we really need to know which Old Testament verses Jesus is referring to. But that is uncertain. I'm going to share with you two options. If you'll go ahead and put that next slide up on the screen, I'll tell you what most students of Scripture think first. So you can see Matthew 11.10 up there, and then most students of Scripture believe Jesus is quoting Malachi 3.1. You can see the similarities on the screen there, but also notice the differences. The phrase, before your face, in Matthew 11.10, is not present in Malachi 3.1. Then, Jesus seems to have changed the pronoun in the last section of the verse. Yahweh, the Lord, God, is speaking in Malachi 3.1, and he says there, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, if Jesus is quoting Malachi 3.1, then he's saying that God has sent his messenger. That would be John. And whose way is he to prepare? In Malachi 3.1, the messenger is to prepare the way before God, right? So if Jesus is quoting Malachi 3.1, then he has changed the me at the end of Malachi 3.1 to you so that it would then refer to Jesus. So Jesus would be saying, God has sent John to prepare the way for Jesus. And the implication would be that Jesus is equating himself with God. Okay? That's the way most students of Scripture take this verse. And that's all well and good. But here's an alternative to consider. If you'll go to the next slide, please. I noticed as you read this, I pay attention to the details, and you notice that the phrase before your face is not present in Malachi 3.1. So then I ask the question, is there an Old Testament verse where this entire sentence is present? And yes, there is. Exodus 23, 20. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the first part of the verse is word for word identical with what Matthew has here. So think back to the context of Exodus for just a moment here. In Exodus 23, 20, the messenger is an angel. In fact, if you were to turn in your English Bible to Exodus 23, 20, you would see something like, Behold, I send an angel before you. But both in Hebrew and in Greek there is one word that means both angel and messenger. Since angels can be considered heavenly messengers. So what was God saying in Exodus 23:20? He was promising the Israelites that he would send an angel to watch over them and to guide them into the promised land. The phrase before your face means in front of the people of Israel The angel is to go before the people of Israel and guide them into the promised land. So, if Jesus is actually quoting Exodus 23.20 and applying it to John, what does he mean? He means, God has sent John to come before you, the people of Israel, in a similar way that God sent an angel before the people of Israel to lead them into the promised land after the Exodus. So, then whose way is John preparing? It's the pathway of the people. What of this preparation language in the rest of Matthew 11.10? If you'll go to the next slide, we can see... The theme of somebody preparing the way for God's people... appears in Isaiah in at least two places. Isaiah 57.14 and 62.10. In Isaiah 62.10... It seems to be some anonymous watchmen that Isaiah the prophet had appointed who are being instructed to prepare the people for the Lord's arrival to save them by clearing away obstacles and announcing the Lord's coming. Isn't that what John does? He calls the Jewish people to repent, to get rid of the sinful obstacles in their lives that would prevent them from enjoying the salvation that Jesus was about to bring, while also warning of the judgment to come if they refuse to repent. To me, this makes better sense of what Jesus says here, and to me it seems more likely that Jesus was drawing on these texts from Exodus and Isaiah rather than Malachi 3.1. Tough slogging, I know. So maybe I can briefly summarize who John is to come to the other question and the more important question. Who is John? What is John, Jesus really saying about John? Well, we have to kind of bring in some other passages of Scripture as well that because Jesus talks about John in multiple places. And so if you go to the next slide, we see a summary of everything Jesus says about John in this passage and in others. He is the voice ...of Isaiah 40, verse 3... ...who calls the people... ...calls the people... ...to prepare the way of the Lord. So it's not John who is preparing... ...for the coming of the Lord, per se... ...it's the rebellious people... ...who need to prepare... ...for the coming of the Lord... ...by repenting. Secondly, John is God's messenger... ...who prepares the way... ...before the people. He announces the coming of the Messiah... ...as God's agent of salvation... ...and judgment... And he again calls the people to repent and warns them of the danger of failing to heed his message. Thirdly, Jesus adds in our passage here that John is Elijah. And here Jesus is alluding to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Would you flip there for just a moment? We'll have this on the screen as well. But Malachi is the book right before Matthew. Uh, so just a couple of pages over probably, you might have to flip past a blank page or two in between Matthew and Malachi, but there it is, at the very end of our Old Testament. So Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the Lord says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here the Lord promises to send Elijah to the people of Israel before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And Elijah's mission will be to essentially challenge the people to repent. I see turning the hearts of fathers toward their children and vice versa as a particular expression of repentance that will play out in the home. The fracturing of the family is a vivid picture of the fracturing of God's people. And that fracture needs to be mended before the day of the Lord or God will pour out His wrath and utterly destroy His people. Jesus says that is what John is up to Jesus says, God has sent Elijah as He promised, and His name is John. Now let's jump back to Matthew eleven eleven. I passed over verses eleven and twelve. Jesus has one more important thing to say to the crowds about John. Look at verse eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, John the Baptist is greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Samuel, greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than Elijah, greater than Isaiah, greater than Daniel, greater than Malachi. As we read through the Gospels, he seems to be such a minor character. Yet, we must look at him through the lens of what Jesus tells us about him. But then immediately, he relativizes John in comparison with everyone in the kingdom of heaven. So that means that you are greater than John the Baptist. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you are greater than John the Baptist. And if you... And I and we together are greater than John the Baptist. That means that we are greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than all the Old Testament prophets. That should boggle your minds. (laughs) How can that be? And what does it mean? And maybe a more important question, do you think of yourself that way? Do you recognize just how privileged you are? How blessed you are? The Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount are not for John the Baptist. They were for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They were for Jesus' followers. They were for us. In what way was John the Baptist greater than all who came before him? And in what way are citizens of the kingdom of heaven now greater than John the Baptist? It seems to be focused on how clearly they can see and testify of Jesus. The Old Testament prophets and people looked forward to a Messiah. They didn't know his name. They didn't know when he'd live. John knew his name. John knew where he lived. John knew his family. John saw him face to face. John even had the privilege of dunking him in water baptizing Him as an expression of righteousness. But John didn't know that he wasn't going to judge the wicked immediately. John didn't know that the kingdoms of this world were going to continue in conflict with this heavenly kingdom for generations. John didn't know that there would be more written revelation from God, more scripture that would shape the expectations of generations of Jesus' followers. This is probably why John was so disappointed and confused. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven can look back and see it all clearly. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven have the whole counsel of God in a book. We can testify to Jesus the Messiah more clearly than John and certainly more clearly than any of the Old Testament faithful. I shouldn't look back and wish for, I wish I could hear from God the way Moses did. I wish I could be as close to God as Daniel. You are closer to God than Moses, than Daniel. Their experiences recorded for us in Scripture are a shadow of the intimacy that's available to Christians today. Don't envy them. You have God in you 24-7, 365 days a year, for eternity. They did not have that. In verse 12, we see Jesus affirm the surprising reality of the nature of the kingdom of heaven that John also surely didn't understand. As one writer puts it, the kingdom will be victim before it is victor. There are transition pains. That began with John's ministry. Verse 12 is notoriously difficult. One writer said of verse 12, there is no way to make this verse simple. So on the next slide, you'll see three English translations that illustrate the three most common ways of understanding the verse. For the sake of time, let me just commend to you the last one, the Good News Bible for this particular verse. It translates the tricky part of verse 12 like this. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violent attacks, and violent men try to seize it. The violence in both halves of the sentence, I view to both be negative violence against the kingdom. Others interpret them differently. One's positive, one's negative, or both are positive. I see them both as negative, and the Good News Bible reflects that interpretation. So John's predicament is an example of verse 12. Okay, Herod is a violent man who tries to seize the kingdom by violently attacking the agents and heralds of the kingdom. Herod would call himself king of the Jews. And so it is that the Jewish leaders would have the kingdom on their own terms. And they will resort to violence against the Messiah himself in order to attempt to have God's kingdom and God's people ruled under their terms. They will fail. Of course, even their violence will ultimately serve God's purposes so that the Messiah would be murdered, dying for sins he didn't commit, but then he would conquer death by his death and rise to ascend to his throne over his heavenly kingdom. To conclude, Jesus directs his attention to the crowd and comments on the negative response of this generation to both John and Jesus. I don't know whether he's targeting only the Jewish leaders here or whether he's highlighting the overarching rejection that he knows will characterize the majority of the people when he is crucified. It seems clear that he's referring to his contemporaries, whatever specific referent he might have in mind, the Jewish people who reject him during his earthly ministry. Here he provides a parable to describe what this generation is like. Sometimes when Jesus compares people to children, it's a good thing. Faith like a child is encouraged. Here, the comparison is not flattering. Here we get a picture of the stubbornness of children. And it isn't pretty in grown-ups. Jesus pictures children out playing, and they're inviting other children to join them in their games. Look at verse 17. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Apparently, the children might pull out a musical instrument and perform a dancing tune. Let's play a wedding game. You be the bride, I'll be the groom, and you can be the preacher, and you guys are the guests. Let's all dance at the reception. But the children just sit there and refuse to dance. That was me as a child. I had to be dragged into fun things. Other kids, and this is going to seem weird, other things, my other kids might want to play a funeral game. I've read that this was normal back then. So they play a dirge, a sad morning funeral song. So you get to be the dead guy. I'll be the preacher and you guys all stand around and wail and cry. Fun stuff. But when the child plays the dirge, nobody moves. It's as though they're all playing dead. But if you're going to play the funeral game, somebody has to play the preacher. You can't all play dead. What's the point in both cases? It seems the musicians are Jesus and John. John came feasting, fasting. John came fasting and calling for ...mourning and repentance. How did this generation respond to John? Well, though popular opinion was mixed... ...a prominent opinion seems to have been that he was demon-possessed. Why is he out there preaching in the wilderness... ...wearing those weird clothes, eating bugs? Well, he's got a demon, of course. Jesus came eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners... ...and he didn't participate in the Pharisees' traditional fasting... So, how did this generation respond to Jesus? He doesn't fast, so he must be a glutton and a drunkard. He's a partier. He's just another sinner, just like all his partying friends. The chastisement of this generation comes in the punchline at the end. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The reverence to deeds of the deeds of wisdom mirrors the reference to the deeds of the Messiah. The deeds of the Christ back in verse 2. Both John and Jesus follow the way of wisdom, even though their behavior is almost the opposite in this regard. John fasts and stays out in the wilderness because he is the prophet who calls people to repent, paving the way for the coming of the Messiah to save and judge the people. Jesus feasts and spends time with sinners because he's the Messiah the groom of Israel who has come to save his people. He will undergo God's judgment in the place of sinners before he himself unleashes God's judgment against sinners who refuse to repent and enter the kingdom of heaven by trusting him. But John, both John and Jesus will be justified or vindicated, shown to be right, and those who persist and their rejection of their unified message will be condemned. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you find yourself disappointed with God, discouraged like John, because God doesn't seem to be acting according to your expectations, check your expectations against the whole counsel of God. Oftentimes we blame our circumstances when we feel distant from God or disappointed with Him when, really, it's our unmet expectations that are the culprit. Consider whether your expectations might be imbalanced or unbiblical. Examine honestly your desires. Does your desire for a particular circumstance cast a shadow over your expectations that the light of Scripture has not yet penetrated? Ultimately, if we are disappointed with God, we must return to trusting Him. Trusting that He is totally sovereign, only good, and completely wise. That is the picture of God we have in the Scriptures. And that is the character of God displayed most fully in the cross of Christ. As we conclude our time this morning, I want to sing about the Messiah yet again. I invite the music team to come on back up on stage to sing to Jesus who has come to judge the wicked. He will do that. But He also comes to save sinners. Jesus died to pay for our sins, even for our misguided expectations, and for our sinful disappointment with God. Exactly according to God's good plan. Can't we expect Him can't we expect Him to govern our lives of, with our good in mind? If Jesus has died to purchase us for God, can't we expect Him to take good care of His people and let that belief shape the way that we interpret our experience And the way that we think about our expectations, particularly of God and what he's going to do. Sing this song with a reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Would you stand with us and sing, please?